0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to part two of the interview with Christopher Moore. I'm not going to waste any time here. Let's get kicking with the second episode. I'm not really sure. Is that Do people say that? Let's get kicking with something? I don't know. Anyway, let's do it. In an attempt to find out what affects Chris on a day-to-day basis? I asked him what pisses him off in life, and conversely, what brings him joy. Um.
1: Wow. Probably, I the the pissing off thing is I you know I'm, I'm really trying to to stay out of current events that way, but I have been a mess since the election. Totally understandable. And uh, I think a lot of us can relate. And and I and quite honestly haven't got much done because I don't do good work when I'm just furious, and I've been sort of furious about that. So so on a, on a real practical, right now basis, um, th- that can of uh, 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 sort of the outrageous hypocrisy of of people in power really pisses me off, um, and that. I don't know if that has anything to do with me as an artist. It just has to do with me and the world and having enough time to, you know, and freedom to be able to know what's going on. Um, in, in my personal life, people that just don't hit their mark, people that say, I'm going to do this by this time or, um, you know, I, this is going to be this, you know, I'm, I'm going to turn this in at this point or I'm going to deliver this at that point, And then they don't do it. It really infuriates me. Really will send me over the top. Um, yeah, and it's not. And I am definitely not a Type A personality. As far as you know, I don't. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not OCD, and I and I I live in chaos um, physically. But but uh, it's just that I hit my marks, and it's not easy. It's it's constantly. Oh my God, I've got a a, a deadline that just is blinking on the calendar, you know, like a neon sign outside of my window 24-7, you know, this is a deadline and it's always out there and I always have to hit it. And I usually hit it. And if I don't hit it, it's I, you know, I call and say, look, can I have two extra weeks or can I have three extra weeks? Or if I send this in, can you get to it right now? And often um, the editor will say, well, no, I, I, even if you send it tomorrow, I can't get to it for three weeks. And I'm like, fine, I'm going to work on it for three more weeks. And, and so when I hit those marks, you know, or if I say I'm going to be somewhere, um, I, I'm there. Um, and so when somebody doesn't do that, I'm infuriated. Um, just, I, you know, it's, it's, it's disrespectful. It's, it, it, you know, I, I don't really, I can't rationalize. It's just anger. I mean, if I was, if I could really, if I really had a hand a handle on it, I wouldn't be angry. I'd just be understanding about it, you know. But but it piss that pisses me off, um, other than that, you know, and, and just you know, sort of what you would think, injustice, intolerance, um, you know, those those things that any are going to be outrageous to any human being.
0: Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. So on the flip side, then, what brings you the most joy in life?
1: Probably. And again, quite honestly, on a on a on a basis of looking over, you know, a, a lifetime is when I really nail like a paragraph for a or a scene, honestly, I it just there's something that I go, Okay, that's just that's just sweet. There's just a feeling about it. I remember I was writing Practical Demon Keep in my first book, and I used to write in a diner at the counter because I didn't have room in the place I was living for a desk. So I would get up every morning and get dressed and drive to this diner and sit and drink coffee and, and write by, you know, longhand. I didn't have a laptop at that point. I wrote a scene one time. I had a friend who was working at a, a small newspaper in town, and it was actually it was one of my roommates. And I wrote the, and he was also a writer, obviously. And I, I wrote this scene. It was maybe page, page and a half. And I just went, oh, this is just this is the best thing I've ever written. And I got in the car and drove down and ran up. And he was in the dark room because <laughs> he was their photographer too. And I'm like, dude, I got to read this to you. And he's going, wait, I can't open the door for another two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I, you know, I just stood there. I, rem- I remember just standing there and outside of the dark room, reading this scene to him because I was just so ecstatic about it. And that's. Thirty years ago, you know, and I still remember that moment. So those those are the greatest moments. It's just when you get it right, and and it's and it's very visceral, and it's not a self-aggrandizing. Right. It's just answering your question: What's the most satisfying? You know, what's the, what gives, brings you joy? It's just not that you know, not that this is going to be in the world and make me famous. It's the man I pulled this off.
0: Right. And do you remember that particular scene?
1: Yeah, it's uh and, and it's uh, you know in retrospect it's not like it doesn't enlighten the human condition that well but it's just a scene about this woman Mavis Sand um who is a bartender and she and she over the years has had so many basically this the the scene is maybe three paragraphs and it talks about over the years each of these parts <laughs> of her body that has been taken you know by death like you know her you know she has a pig heart valve and she has Um, you know, she has artificial knees and artificial (laughs) hips and all this stuff is gradually been gone. And the scene sort of ends with saying, so when the, when her time finally came, you know, death would be like slipping into a warm bath (laughs) and, and that, um, you know, cause she had lived so long with it. And I don't remember the, obviously the exact wording, but that was the scene that I went, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I would high five myself if it wasn't embarrassing. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, so, yeah, that's it's probably that. And 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 then, you know, the things that give anybody joy. Um, I, I don't have kids. I, so I suppose that that's what most, most people would answer. Um, but, uh, you know, it's that my work is really where I drive most of my despair and joy. Both. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Got that going. Sure. And. You know, whenever I'm
0: reading your books, I always think, wow, is there anything that happened in, in Chris's life that kind of inspired some of the the crazy stuff that he writes about? So is there anything in your life that has happened that's kind of crazy and you that you can pinpoint that has led to some of the writing?
1: I don't think there's been, I mean, there have been a couple of scenes, literally just scenes um, that came out of dreams, you know, where you just sort of have that unconscious combining of images that wouldn't you would never put together in a logical manner um you know so there's that as far as the supernatural stuff but much of it is just working within a a context of of rules that were set up you know i we all i think are reading things like peter pan when we're little and you know shit about talking bears and (laughs) you know all that kind of stuff everything you read about when you're literally a mouse and the motorcycle is supernatural so I think I'll, what I do in my work as far as story goes is just extrapolation of that it's not again looking for anything autobiographical isn't going to be it I mean there there are certainly research uh, opportunities where I have an experience you know because I put myself there that I can work into a book you know, Island of the Sequin Love Nun, I went out to the outer islands of Yap and lived on this island where the, you know, highest level of technology was a thermos. And, um, and a lot of the little moments that I had, i worked into scenes in that book, you know, and and the characters are people that I met there. Um, obviously, you know, made to do things that they didn't do in real life, but the characters are definitely based on real people.
0: Yeah. Like the shark guys, right?
1: Yeah, that that all those people are ba be- Yeah, all those characters are based on people I met.
0: Oh, wow. So you actually had what was it called? Tuba?
1: Yeah, I yeah, think. every yeah. night. And had to, yeah. every night.
0: Yeah, yeah, and Beetle nut too, right? Yeah, how yeah. is that, by the way? I've never tried it's it. It's horrible,
1: it's horrible. It's <laughs> like eating sand. Oh, uh, well, um, all right. Yeah, it's because you put powdered lime on it, which is what gives it its uh sting, I guess, and it and it so it's it has very little flavor and it has this um this kind of burn to it because of the the powdered lime which is, makes a chemical reaction but the powdered lime is sandy you know it's burnt coral is is where they get it and so it's it, you know it it for one wears your teeth away if you do a lot of betel nut it turns your teeth black a lot of the people of of the micronesian islands or or any place that use betel nut their teeth are black um and, uh, you know, it's, but you, you know, you do it and and the high is like smoking, you know, it's not, you know, cup of coffee high. It's not, it's, it's the kind of thing that you can do habitually because you're not gacked on it by any stretch of the imagination. It's certainly a drug that you could, you know, I, I suppose chewing caffeinated gum all day would be about the same or, or nicotine gum would be about the same equivalent of it. So there's no, there's no high to it. And it like any bad habit, you'd have to make yourself do it because it's unpleasant, you know, from the get-go. Uh, and, and tuba is just horrible. It's like drinking alcoholic dishwater. Um, <laughs> but the, the guys wouldn't talk to me if I didn't go to the men's drinking circle. And I needed them to talk to me to have a book. So even though I had been sober at that point, like seven or eight years, um, I, I went to the men's drinking circle every night and passed around the little coconut shell full of tuba.
0: Yeah, and do you know how they're doing right now? I don't know if there's some way that you can keep in touch with them.
1: Um. Well, there, Yeah. There's no internet. Um. They. I got a. Uh, I got a note from an email from the chief's daughter about who I stayed with probably five or six years ago, and she was on. Um, God, it's it's a more Palau, which is a much more technologically um, advanced island. You know, they do have internet and stuff. And she sent me an email saying everybody was okay, but I mean it's been so long. That was like '95, I think I was in in Yap, so and and I've moved. it's it's far. There's it's not on the way to anywhere, and and you move on. I mean at some at some point that may be my character flies that I don't keep those relationships with people. You know I have, I haven't seen any of the people I lived on Crow Reservation for Coyote Blue, and I haven't seen any of those people since. Um um the people that i that i met when i did fluke i've kept in touch with and i you know in fact spend christmases with the guy who was the the k- photographer character in there i mean we're very good friends but but it's just you know when you write about a bunch of different stuff and you go to different corners of the world um you know you don't it's it's tough to maintain friendships when again you spend most of your life locked in a room by yourself uh, uh making clicking noises and maybe and there are people that probably do it but i clearly don't have that ability
0: that's really cool though that you're actually able to go out and live it to develop the story i don't i don't really know how many other authors do things like that
1: i i don't know either i i just thought that it was i i early on i realized that um you if if everything comes from your imagination or some academic research you're never going to be out in the world and have a life so so doing, if I was ever going to have any sort of adventures, I had to make that part of my work. And, um, you know, those, those things have sort of calmed down from, you know, going and living on an island somewhere um, to, you know, hanging out in Paris for two months. But uh, it, it's, it, it always brings something to the book. My wife said that to me when I was, I was going to write Lamb. And as there always is, there was political unrest in Israel at the time. And I said, I don't need to go. I'm writing about people that have been dead for 2000 years. There's not gonna be anything that I get. And she said, go, you always get something that you never could have anticipated. And and so I went and I spent like three weeks in Israel. You know, I took like the footsteps of Jesus tour. I, I went into a travel agent, which was a thing that they there still were then. And I said, look, I want the footsteps of Jesus. I wanna get in, get out, nobody gets hurt. And um, so he sent me on a tour. Um, of Israel, it was like three weeks, and you got to see Sea of Galilee and you know the, you know Mount of Olives and all the different you know places in you know historical and religious places to all the different faiths in uh, in Israel and Palestine, and um, and it did it it added an enormous uh, dimension to the story that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't gone. Um, just just going to the Dead Sea, you know where essentially Jericho is in Judea. It, th- that's something that you can't even imagine until you've been there. I couldn't have imagined a place as desolate as that place is. Um, and, and so when I have you know, a scene from the Bible, when, uh, which is two lines in the Bible, I think, when Jesus heals the two blind men in Jericho, you know, the first thing they say in Lamb is, is so this is it? And he's like, <laughs> yeah, you can see, behold. And, he, and they're like, yeah, I really thought there would be more color. Uh, and they start asking, "Well, what color is that?" And he goes, "Well, that's brown." And they go, "Well, how about that?" And he goes, "Well, that would also be brown um, because brown. <laughs> because man, when you're in Jer- when you're in Judea or what was Judea, that's the only color you're going to see. It's various shades of brown and tan. Um, there's nothing green or or any other color there. So so that you know, it does add dimension. You know, and and uh, for uh, virtually everything, you know, a lot of the books are set. In places where I live, so I don't have to do that. Um, I think four of my books or five of my books or six of my books are set in San Francisco, where I live. Um, Three of them were set in Pine Cove, which used to be where I lived. One set in Hawaii, where I, I went first and then went and lived for a few years afterwards.
0: And it definitely comes out in the books that you really know the places that you're writing about. Now, do you have any advice for any aspiring writers out there who are wondering, maybe a couple things: one, how do I actually go to a physical physical location to do research for a book? And two, when I'm not out there, but I'm instead, you know, inside making clicking noises on my computer alone in a room, how do I deal with cabin fever?
1: Well, the the, the first thing is I, I there's a, there was no instruction book on how to go do research and, and I really. Sort of went to the wrong places in some cases, and then just made the story from what I did see. Like I did, uh, I went to Micronesia for uh, Island of the sequin Love Nun because I was going to write about cargo cults, which was something I encountered in in anthropology one hundred and one in in college, and it was interesting. And a lot of my books are all based on what's cool, you know. Like if you go through and and take a whole one hundred level ethnography course, the thing that's going to one of the things that'll stand out is cargo cults are cool you know so that was that was sort of and that's my my uh, approach to research too is you go look at stuff and you don't write everything down you get you don't get into this pointillistic detail about things that don't matter you you go well, what's cool what was cool here what did i see here that i can make fun of or i can sort of illuminate or i can just people will go well that's interesting and uh you know what what's vivid i guess is a better way to describe it But and I didn't know how to do that. I just would throw myself into. I just went to truck because there were sixty one Japanese warships that were sunk in the lagoon, and I wanted to scuba dive them. And I just sort of walked around asking people. You know, it was it was. I was just as pathetic Coyote Blue. I just was going to write a a book about the Native American uh, trickster god Coyote, and I was like. Well, they have Indians in Montana. I'll go to Montana. I know a person in Montana. So I went to Montana, started asking around. I just remember I picked up a hitchhiker and driving from Seattle across Spokane into Idaho and into Montana. And this, this guy was obviously Native, America, Native American. I picked him up right outside of Seattle and we were driving all the way across the state to Spokane. And this poor guy just—I grilled him. It was like, you know, and it was like he would have been. I would have much rather have had somebody try and murder me than talk to this guy. I was like, so what's it like to be an Indian? Have you always been an Indian? What's it like when you get up in the morning? What's an Indian breakfast like? You know. (laughs) <laughs> I'm mean, not quite that blunt. I was trying, to, you know, but I'm, yeah. I was in this ridiculous sports car I bought with my first advance on my first book, you know, my my zing thing, you know, and uh, and this poor guy is hitchhiking across spoke uh, across Washington State, and he's got to listen to my stupid shit. So it was just—I'm sure he tells the story. Is it's, it? I his version is a horror story. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but uh, so my answer is, you know, what would my advice be is, is, you know, try not to get killed. Um, (laughs) I love it. I'm writing that one down. Yeah. Yeah. Try not to get killed. Uh, And, and, you know, if you can read ahead of where you're going, that's probably a good idea. I didn't always do that. Um, but, but uh, some of the more extreme research things that I did, you know, there really wasn't a discernible internet when I did them. There was like email and, um, in the early nineties up to the mid nineties, you know? And, and so there wasn't the ability to just click on, I wonder what it's like in Billings, Montana, you know, you just couldn't do that. And so you, you know, get as many books as you can, but because my whole uh, reason for going was to have you know what's it like vividly viscerally in person reading it was not other than just you know making sure I don't get lost was not going to be the best thing and the best thing to do was and it and that's also difficult for me because I tend to be shy about approaching people and certainly early in my career I I didn't feel like I could tell anybody I was a writer I mean I thought I was faking until I had like four books and yeah I'd read this this quote by Saul Bellow probably when I, before I'd written a book. And he said, of those writers who write a first book, publish a first book, 99% of them will never write a second. And of those who write a second, 99% of those will never write a third. And so having read that, I was like, well, I can't, until I write it, publish at least three books, I can't really, I don't know if I've even made it. You know, I'll just tell people I'm a, I'm a waiter and I write a little bit, you know? And so I, so when in doing research, I didn't have credentials. Now, as time went on, I would be like, Hey, here's a pile of my books. And then you all of a sudden people are like, Oh, okay. And that's, that's certainly what I did with my, when I did my whale book is I just sort of sent a pile of books to the scientists and they went, yeah, sure. Come on over, hang out with us. But, but you know, that's not something that you can say, yeah, as a new writer, the best thing you should do is have, you know, five of your books to show to people so they know that you're legit. But that's, that's sort of my, my strategy now, but it doesn't help with just, you know, like real people in the world. They don't care, you know, and also I don't interview real people in the world. Like when we were in France, I didn't, uh, I had evolved in my methods and I didn't just go up to people and go, so what's it like to be French? Have you always been French? <laughs> right. Did you always want to be French? <laughs> That's like What's like? a French, French breakfast, breakfast like? Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> so right. but but uh, you know, basically, don't get killed. Try and do a little planning and and think about your story the whole time that you're you're doing it. You know, because you you know you can your story can it kind of needs to remain fluid. The more fluid that it it can, rather than have this hard. I mean, I always have an idea of what I want to do before I do the research. But you can't make it too hard in that line because then you'll, you will you close the door to a lot of cool stuff.
0: Gotcha. And when you're at home, you know, just clicking away on your own, how do you deal with the solitude? Or does it even bother you that much?
1: I think I'm better than, than a lot of people I know, including writers I know. Um, I, I'm okay with it. I mean, it, it, obviously, anybody who becomes successful as a novelist is has come to terms with it. But, um, there are some people, I mean, Douglas Adams famously hated it, hated the solitary nature of, of writing. And that's why he went off and made video games and other stuff in the last few years of his, his career. For me, everything is fighting to get discipline. Always has been, you know, I, I try to write every day and man, I miss that a lot. I, I mean, I'm worse now than I was when I started, but I try to write every day. I try to at least get in front of the manuscript every single day um, when I'm working on a book. And, you know, I do set goals, but I often don't hit them. And sometimes I exceed them, but more often I don't hit them. You know, I'll try to say, do a thousand words a day. And, you know, if I could, if I was really doing a thousand words a day, I'd be finishing a book every three months. And that's just not what I'm doing. (laughs) You know, I'm writing a book every 18 months on average. But, uh, you know, it's just, everything is, is, has to, for me, has to be, going back to how do I get my work done, you know, and and I have to learn to say no to people. I really have to learn to say no to people. And that's something that's not easy. It's like your friends from New York are coming into town. Can you have lunch? Well, if I do, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to miss working that day because I'm going to get up and I'm going, to oh, well, it's nine as I get started, I'm going to have to leave. Whereas I would probably get all the work done in the world I was going to do in those three hours. But mentally, I know I'm useless and I'm going to not do anything because I'm going to go have lunch with someone. The same token, if I have a dentist appointment at two, it's like, why even bother starting to work at seven in the morning? Uh, (laughs) And and that's just my own weakness. So everything for me is about going, I can't, you know, people are like, we're coming out in June. Can you hang out with us? It's like, no. Um, and and that's that's just me because I tend to live in tourist towns, you know. I lived in Hawaii for three years, and you know everybody I knew came and visited. Um, and I live in San Francisco now, so every time someone comes to San Francisco, there and that's and it's great. It's it's. I I much rather hang out with friends than than write, but I can't, you know. And, uh, and so so my dealing with it is very much a day to day thing. Very much a, a you try to. The same way that you know, you can't I don't think it's healthy to stare down the the, the barrel of a four hundred page novel. You know, you deal with a with a novel scene by scene, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, you know, chapter by chapter. And and that's how you get it done. And it's the same token with the time frame to write a book. You know, you can't look at, okay, it's 12 months and I'm not gonna have any social contact with anybody um you have to live with it day by day and and within your tolerances and so if you really need to have some human contact you go okay as soon as i finish this chapter i'm going to you know call some friends you know and and work within that um i i think my method might be different than other people's i write slowly i don't probably i'm not as productive on a day by day basis as a lot of writers are so you know guys that are writing books in 3 months um i take typically 18 um so there's a lot of more goofing off time and a lot more sort of dragging myself back to the page you know I'm, i'm not a master of it i just do it well enough to get a book done every 18 months and my stuff is funny so it's harder to be disciplined about that because you can sit down i can sit down and write you know for eight hours a day and and maybe crank 20 pages or something but if it's not funny i have i have to do it again tomorrow Whereas if you're just trying to do plot points, it's a little bit easier to to do the, you, you know, for one, you can outline more um, because you you don't have to follow comic impulses and so forth. But, but I think your question was, what's the secret to managing your time and dealing with the loneliness? And the, the secret is, you know, you just do it as long as you can. And then, you know, you go, look, I'm going a little bit loopy. And the people in your life need to understand too. And that's not going to be an easy thing to get it's it's one of the hardest things is to get everyone else to understand that this is your work and it needs to be it needs to be treated as if you were showing up to you know see patients or you know build houses or whatever else somebody else's work is it's I I, it almost feels embarrassing sometimes to say to someone I have to work you know because they're (laughs) like well why can't you just go out to lunch you know you're You know, nobody cares whether you finish this or not, and that's especially (laughs) really. uh, Well, yeah, that's. I mean, that's especially the case when you're starting out. You know, because you know how pretentious is it? I'm writing a novel. (laughs) I can't have lunch with you because I'm writing a novel. It's going to be the best Um, one ever. Yeah, I need to illuminate the human condition (laughs) and the human heart in conflict with itself. (laughs) Exactly. I can't have lunch with you um so yeah it's again it goes back to that balance thing and and i think everybody finds their own way but you just you always have to end up back at the page because it's not going to get done otherwise so whatever it takes to get your ass in front of the page that's what you got to do and and without distractions i mean christ the internet is is the one of the worst things to happen to a writer you know to be two clicks away from everyone and anything is right? is it's yeah it's murderous to productivity i mean it's great if you're like i wonder if this this tree grows at that altitude or some stupid <laughs> detail nobody cares about to be able to know that instantly but it's it's just murderous for productivity um if i were the strong if i were strong enough i'd say what you want to do is hardwire unplug from the internet when you write but i've never been strong enough to do that so <laughs> You know, I was up north at, I have a writing hovel up north of since County and the fires, the <laughs> fires knocked the internet out last week when I was up there working and I panicked. I mean, I had plenty of food, water. And I was 30 miles away from the nearest fire <laughs> and I was supposed to be working. And I'm like, jesus christ what if they're saying something on twitter that's a thing <laughs> you know? Seriously. i mean i couldn't believe it, it was like a, it was like oh what are you it's like someone interrupting your drug source or it was really Seriously. sad yeah i my wife and go i'm coming home she's like why i'm like to escape the fires you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? and that wasn't it. it was like i've got to say something snarky on twitter or i will
0: explode exactly yeah and wow, well, speaking of, so it is it is kind of difficult focusing on a lot of different things, even like for the, the work that I do, the things that I do. And, and I, as a digression, I can totally relate with saying, well, I don't have time. I have to uh, do this podcast. I have to interview this person or something, you know, same type of thing. But also uh, going back to what we spoke of much earlier, it's been difficult focusing on just about anything sometimes when you're like, wow, the world is. I guess entropy is real. And I guess, you know, all this, how, how could it get any worse? And then the next day, oh, it just did. It just got a lot yeah. worse. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't,
1: I don't know how, I, I don't have any advice because I'm just um, trying to get through day to day. And we don't want to go down the political rat hole, but Jesus Christ. It just is, it's, it's so ridiculous. And, and it's right there you know it's right i mean you get on a plane and and you get off 2 hours later and the entire world has crumbled while you were on the plane it's like we're at war with who um or, or some obscene thing has happened and and that is has not been you know you think that would well it's much easier to just shut off social media and the internet and cable and whatever else because of that because you want to escape it but in fact it's not i wish it was but it's not because you're, you feel like, well, wait a minute. Do I just have a go bag next to my desk? <laughs> you know? right. when, I, when I see the flash, you know, then I like go to the shelter. Yeah. Um, that, that takes a little more discipline than I have. So I don't know. And I, and I, think, the, I think the, I acknowledge that while what I, I don't feel like my work is easy now and I, and I struggle with it, it's still easier for me. I just don't have that perspective now than it is for someone starting out or someone who's earlier in their career. I mean, I basically know that when I finish a book, it's going to go into print and I'm going to get paid for it. And and that's um, there's some comfort in that.
0: All right. That does it for part two of the three-part interview with Christopher Moore so in the third and final episode of this series we'll talk about legacy we will talk about oh even romance writers how many books they write it's pretty fascinating and will we ever see a christopher moore book on the big screen that and more coming up in part three all right talk to you guys soon